Okay, turn with me, if you would, to Matthew 12, verses uh, 30, we're studying verses 38 to 42. Matthew 12, 38 to 42. We started looking at this last time, we got through most of it, but I want to review and then we'll finish it up and move on. Uh, As Matthew comes to the conclusion of chapter 12, uh, the words that Jesus speaks here are words of judgment. Uh, And he is passing judgment upon the Pharisees and scribes. Uh, They're not really interested in anything he does or says. They're only trying to make him look bad in the eyes of the people. They've accused him of being a Sabbath breaker. They've accused him of being demonic. Now they have another shot. They want to try to prove he's an imposter and a deceiver. So they make a final request of him. A final, and he gives them a final decree. Let's look at their final request. Verses 38 to 40. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered and said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation eagerly seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Uh, These guys have just been devastated by Jesus' attack on them. In verses 31 and 32, he said that they had blasphemed the Holy Spirit. They would never be forgiven for that in this age or any age in the future. He's told them they were rotted trees with rotten fruit. And they're a brood of vipers. They're speaking evil because they had evil hearts. And he told them that by their evil words, they would be damned. So he has spoken as strongly to them as it's possible to speak. And they're trying at this point probably to keep from blowing their cool because all the other people are watching them, the, the, the public's watching them. So they probably retreated and tried to figure out a strategy. And so they sent back a little committee. It says in verse 38, some of them came back. So there's this little committee that comes back trying to uh, come up that has the right answer. And they say to him, teacher, which betrays their hypocrisy right there. Because that is a, uh, they knew the people perceived Jesus as a, teacher or rabbi. It's a title of great respect, but they didn't respect him at all. They despised him. But nonetheless, they they say they call him teacher to try to uh, uh, keep up their reputation. And they say, we want to see a sign from you. So what's the sign that they're asking for? They're asking, uh, I mean, they've seen all kinds of things before. Healings by the hundreds, feeding of thousands. Uh, they've seen all these many miracles and Yet, they want to ask for a sign. And uh, we see a parallel passage in Matthew 16, where it says the Pharisees, Sadducees came and they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And uh, so it's a different incident, but that time it's more specific, a sign from heaven. So I think that's what they were after. They wanted a spectacular display of control over the celestial sphere, the Maybe make the sun stand still like he did with Joshua. uh, Or rearrange the constellations, have the moon go racing across the sky, uh, whatever. But uh, they asked him for a sign because they didn't think he could do it. And uh, they wanted to discredit him. They did it to embarrass him. So that's their ploy. They're impudent, they're insulting, they're hypocritical. His reply, though, in verse 39, he says, An evil and adulterous generation eagerly seeks for a sign. 
In other words, he says the only kind of people who want that in the kind of show are evil and adulterous. Now, in other words, he's saying if you'd been faithful to God, you wouldn't need that kind of thing. You've created a breach in the covenant relationship to God. Uh, you violated your vows. And Jesus says anyone who seeks such a sign gives visible evidence of being a part of those who have abandoned God and his covenant with them. You're a nation of adulterers and adulteresses. It's obvious because you seek a sign. You don't even know God or you would not. You would know you need no sign. And then he says no sign will be given to it. So from the viewpoint of his power and ability, he could have done it. But he couldn't do it from the moral viewpoint because Jesus Christ is not in the business of bending to the whims of those who want no relationship to him. It's morally impossible to grant such a wish to those who hate Christ. Now look what he says next. He says, no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. What was that sign? Well, he explains in verse 40. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So it's a sign. It's a prophecy. Uh, and this kind of prophecy, we said last time, is known as typological predictive prophecy. Uh, that is, it's a prophecy presented in the form of a type in which someone or something in the Old Testament foreshadows the person or work of Christ. We can only be certain about typological predictive prophecy if they are specifically identified as such in the New Testament. For example, Abel's blood, identified 12, uh, Hebrews 12.24, as foreshadowing Christ's blood. 1 Peter 3.20-23 says Noah's Ark was a type of Christ saving some of God's judgment. Hebrews 7.3 tells us Melchizedek was a type of Christ as our high priest. And so too the story of Jonah. Uh, while it doesn't verbally predict anything about Christ, it functions as a typological predictive prophecy about Christ's resurrection. Uh, as I said, if there is an Old Testament type, you can only know that it's a type if the New Testament tells you that. Uh, and that, in the case of Jonah and the belly of the fish, that's exactly what we have because that's what Jesus tells us. And we said there's a couple of matters we have to clear up here in this. I mentioned these last time. The first one was that Jesus obviously believed the story of Jonah, uh, despite what uh, modern scientists and critics of the Bible would tell us, that you know, it just isn't possible for a man to be swallowed by a large fish and survive for three days. Uh, yeah, uh, they, they say these things. Jesus believed it. Uh, and since Jesus is God, I, I think he would be the one with the, the right viewpoint. So he validates the authenticity of Jonah's story. Another thing we talked about last time, it says three days and three nights. Everybody has trouble with that. But in the Jewish mindset, the way they spoke of it, the, the, the phrase a day and a night was commonly used to refer to any part of a 24-hour period. Uh, that's how they used it all the time. And they're thinking any part of the day was counted as a day and a night. Uh, so when Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea buried Jesus on Friday just before sundown, it counted as a day and a night. And when he rose on the third day Sunday, it was counted as a day and a night. Uh, it's simply the way they express that kind of time period. Uh, the Talmud even says that any part of one is as the whole. Uh, 
So Jonah was in the fish for some part of three days, just as the Lord was in the heart of the earth, some part of three days, not necessarily the whole 72 hours. And so then Jonah's experience of coming back alive out of the fish after three days and nights becomes a picture of Jesus being resurrected after three days and nights in the tomb. That's the sign. Jesus says, no sign will be given except my resurrection. That's the last sign. After that, we don't read of Jesus doing any other miracles. It's the last one. When they rejected it, that was the coup de grace. Uh, that was over. Uh, they, when we're confronted with the living Christ and his death and resurrection from the dead, the matter of our destiny is determined. If you turn your back then, no matter how religious you may appear to be, no matter how holy you try to be, you show yourself to be a vile sinner who hates God because of what you do with Jesus Christ. And so that was their final request for a spectacular sign. Jesus says, I'm not going to give you that kind of spectacular sign you're looking for. I'll give you one final sign, my own resurrection. And then he gives them his final decree. And this is where we stopped last time. And so let's pick up with verses 41 and 42 and look at his final decree. It says, The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Continuing with his illustration from the life of Jonah, Jesus contrasts the response of the pagan Ninevites to Jonah's message with the, uh, uh, the how the Ninevites responded to Jonah with the response of the Jewish leaders to Jesus, to his message. This is one of the most scathing denunciations of the scribes and Pharisees found in Scripture. These guys were the ones who thought they were the best of God's favored people. And yet Jesus says they would be condemned by the Ninevites at the final judgment because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Now turn with me back to Jonah 3. And let's think back to the story of the Ninevites. They, had, they were Gentiles. They were pagan idolaters. They had no law of God. They were outside of the covenants and the promises. They were in the dark. They were alienated from God without understanding. And into their midst comes a prophet by the name of Jonah. And he was a stubborn, hard-headed, disobedient man who had been vomited up by a big fish, having to do something he didn't really want to do in the first place. And his whole message to them is a message of doom. That's all he talks about. You've got 40 days, and then God is going to overthrow Nineveh. It was doom, devastation, destruction, and damnation. And he's talking to a people with no advantages. You know something else? Jonah didn't do any miracles either. There were no signs. And yet, what happens? Look at verse 5, Jonah 3. And the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. From the leaders to the common folk. Verse 6. 
Then the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, laid aside his mantle from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. That was the symbol of their attitude of repentance. Verse 7, And he cried out and said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, animal, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat and do not let them drink water. But both man and animal must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God with their strength that each may turn from his evil way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn away from his burning anger so that we will not perish. Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. So God relented concerning the evil which he had spoken he would bring upon them, and he did not bring it upon them. Listen, a bunch of Gentile, pagan, idolatrous people outside the covenant, outside the law of God, got a half-hearted, disobedient, foolish, rebellious, wicked prophet who comes and preaches nothing but doom to them, performed no miracles, and yet the whole place repented and believed God. Now contrast that with verse 41 of Matthew 12. It says, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Here's a different situation. These are Jews, not Gentiles. These are the people of God, the people of the covenant and the promises. These are God's people who had the law. And one of them, one came to them who was greater than Jonah. Who was it? He was the God of Jonah in human flesh. And he was perfect and sinless and he was compassionate and powerful. And his message was not a message of unmitigated doom, but a message of grace and mercy and forgiveness and salvation. And he did miracle after miracle and sign after sign after sign. And yet they hated him and killed him. And so Jesus says at the judgment, the people of Nineveh will rise up and condemn this people for with much less did they believe and repent. They act as a historical condemnation of the unbelief of Israel. But he isn't done. He has one more illustration of the final decree in verse 42. He recalls another event in the history from 1 Kings 10. It says, The queen of the south will rise up with this generation of the judgment and will condemn it. Stop there. Here's someone else who's going to condemn the generation, the queen of the south. Now, who is it? Well, if you read 1 Kings 10, you would read there of a woman we know as the queen of Sheba. Uh, she was known as the queen of the south because her country, Sabah, was in lower Arabia in what is today modern-day Yemen. Uh, it was a great distance from Israel, about 1,200 miles. Now, the Sabaeans were a very prosperous people, far and away the most prosperous people on the entire Arabian Peninsula. They were located on the trade route to sea to India, and they had become incredibly rich because of their proclivity for successful trading. They were also agricultural geniuses, and they traded the fruit and grain they produced and became quite wealthy. They developed many trades and skills so that this queen was literally wealthy beyond imagination. 
And Jesus says here that she would stand up in judgment against this generation and condemn it. She was a Gentile. She was an Arab. She was a she. A Gentile Arab woman is going to condemn the chosen people. Why? Because he says, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Stop there again. What does that mean? Well, she heard about Solomon. She heard he was the wisest man in the world. And in those days, there weren't any books to speak of. So if you wanted to know what a wise man thought, what did you do? Well, you had to go talk to the wise man. And there's no other way. And so it says she came from the ends of the earth. That was a long way away. From their perception, it looked like the ends of the earth. Uh, in fact, in Joel 3.8, it refers to them as a distant nation. Uh, Jeremiah 6.20 calls it a distant land. Uh, so it was a great distance. But she crossed the desert with all of her entourage and all the stuff she brought with her. You can read about it in 1 Kings 10. It says she came to Jerusalem with a very glorious retinue with camels carrying spices and very much gold and precious stones. I mean, folks, this wasn't a weekend trip to see him. This was 1,200 miles across the desert along the shore of the Red Sea. That was a major endeavor. So what's the big deal about this? Well, here again, we have a Gentile, pagan, idolatrous, godless, lawless woman, the queen of a bunch of pagan people who hears about a man who has the wisdom of God. And she crosses the desert with all of her entourage from a remote land to come without invitation to seek that wisdom. And you know what happened when she got there? It was far more than she thought it would be. And she was so astounded that she gave Solomon tons of treasure. First Kings 10 says that after lauding and praising him for his uh, wisdom, verse 10 says, then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great amount of spices and precious stones. Never again did such an abundance of spices come in as that which the queen of Sheba gave King Solomon. Do you realize how much gold 120 talents is? That is 4.5 tons of gold. And in, in terms of today's value, that's the equivalent of $252 million. Solomon didn't need that. But that was her way of honoring him and thanking him. Now look at the end of verse 42. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. You don't even have to take a journey. He's right here, and the implication is, and you don't even care. Here is a Gentile woman with no advantages, no invitation, who crossed the desert with all of this stuff to hear wisdom from the lips of a man who speaks the truth of God, and you won't even listen when he's in your midst. And he's greater than Solomon. He's the God of Solomon. 
No wonder she will rise up and condemn you in judgment. She would have had an excuse for not attaining the wisdom of Solomon, but the Jews had no excuse for not attaining the wisdom of Christ. So Jonah and the queen of the south will rise up and condemn the unbelieving and unrepentant Jews of Jesus' day. You know something, we can draw a connection to our own day. There are people today who reject Jesus Christ and they reject the resurrection of Christ and they reject the wisdom of Christ. They may be sitting in a religion, may be sitting in a church, someday pagan Ninevites and a pagan queen, by contrast, will condemn them in judgment. You see, what it's saying is that those who are far off and yet believe prove that those who are near are responsible to believe. And anyone who tries to exist within the framework of Christianity and yet rejects Jesus Christ, theirs is the greatest condemnation. We have millions of people in the United States who reject Jesus Christ. In fact, in the most recent large survey of theological beliefs in the United States, which took place in 2020, they found that 52% of Americans believe that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Over half. And two-thirds of Americans, 64%, say that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Folks, that means that 172 million Americans, people who live in the wealthiest country in the world with the greatest opportunities in all of history, to hear and learn about Jesus Christ, do not believe that he is God. And 212 million do not believe that he is the only way, the only truth, and the only life through which they enter into a relationship with God the Father. And one day, millions of impoverished African and Central American and South American and Middle Eastern and Asian believers who heard the gospel and repented and believed often at great cost to their livelihoods and safety, even the loss of their lives, will stand at the judgment and condemn those Americans because they squandered the opportunity to read the story of Jesus in the scriptures and they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ over and over and over again and yet they rejected it and walked away. And theirs will be a far greater condemnation than those who never heard of Jesus at all. That, yes. We can say, I think, I believe that that particular generation that was there at that time will be in heaven. But we know that 100 years later, yes. they weren't. <laughs> so. Well, you know, this gives new meaning to the importance of pleading with those we know and love, our family members, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers to come to Jesus Christ. It was Charles Spurgeon who once said, quote, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. 
If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for, end quote. As I prepared this, I thought of the many friends and family members and co-workers who I've let slip away into eternity without sharing the gospel with them. Through the years, there were many with whom I did share the gospel, but there are also many with whom I did not. I know God is sovereign in all things, but that does not excuse my failure to be a witness for him. And I know you're just like me in that way. Colossians 4, 5 tells us that we are to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, redeeming the time. That is, making the most of the opportunities. All of us have failed him many times by not taking advantage of the opportunities God puts in our path to share the gospel, or at the very least, to speak some kind word that points people to Jesus Christ. May we resolve that we will start taking those opportunities whenever and for whatever amount of time that the Lord allows us to continue living until he finally calls us home. Did I see your hand? Yes. Um, and for those that we overlook unintentionally, doesn't God let our witness witness for him? Well, if we, when you say unintentionally, what do you mean by that? Well, there's many people that I pass every day that I can't talk to all Right, of. right. I just physically can't do it. Well, but they can see by our actions and they should they should see something and then if they say something about it then we ought to speak up for Christ we ought to speak up for Christ I remember one time years ago I had one of those little special moments I was standing in line at the grocery store this young man was standing was checking out and he got to the point where he had the lady ring up all of his stuff and he was $12 short and he starts trying to pick through what he's going to put back there. And, and I looked at him and I could tell this is a man who doesn't have any money. And he's having to survive. And the items he's putting back were things I knew he needed. And so I said, I'll pay for that. Put that on my bill. And the lady was shocked. And she went ahead and did it. We took care of it. And I didn't think a thing of it, but as I turned to walk away, one of the workers from the grocery store turned to me and says, I've never seen anyone ever do that before. Why did you do that? <laughs> Big door. <laughs> so I shared the gospel with him in a couple of sentences there. And uh, he just said, wow, turned around and walked away. I have no idea if there was any impact in his life or not. But I did that. So... Yes. My, my cousin, I uh, met later in life. We weren't supposed to know we existed. And we stayed with them a, a, a few nights when our kids were there. And I know he wasn't saved, but he was in the Da Vinci Code. And uh, I prayed for him. I loved him. I sent him a Christmas card and a birthday card of cookies every year for years. And I was always wanted to uh, share the gospel with him. So his name was not But I still have blood Well, we know God is sovereign in all those situations. We know we're still responsible to share the gospel. Uh, we don't have 
you could have shared the most perfect gospel presentation in all of human history, and it would be meaningless if he has not been chosen before the foundation of the world. So, so we don't we don't take the blame for someone's refusal to believe, but it doesn't remove the responsibility we have to share. I was always going out. I was always going out. I was always going out. Okay. All right. Well, let's move on to the next section. Yes. I have one comment to make. You know, I was talking about Nineveh, uh, and they all repented and so on. In our little town where we lived at, uh, they had evangelists come in there, and there were many people that were saved. And that was it, it just, you know, people you knew, and then all of a sudden they're in church, and they're saved and happy, and you stay here the rest of their lives. And that just was really thrilling to see that. Little Nineveh in Alaska. <laughs> okay. Matthew 12, verses 43 to 50. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state is of that man becomes worse than the first. This is the way it will be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Back in the 1980s, during the Reagan administration, everyone in this room except for Kyle and Amanda were exposed to a very strong emphasis on morality. There was even an organization founded by Jerry Falwell Sr. Uh, known as the Moral Majority. Uh, we heard then about the need for our nation to return to the standard of behavior and ethics and morality and religion upon which our nation was founded. Today, as our society has devolved into a far more debased culture, uh, we find that there are still those voices which cry, out for the same things, the desire to return to the standards of morality which were common throughout the culture a few generations ago. Many of the people in rural America, and particularly in the South, where there is a culture of nominal Christianity, uh, plead for a return to biblical values, not so much as a turning to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, but rather a turn to the moral behavior that Christianity produces. Uh, in other words, they want the outward change of behavior even if there's not a corresponding interchange of the heart. And we see that evidenced by the fact that many, of, that many evangelical churches and denominations are preaching morality and patriotism and loyalty to the standards of America and spending their time endorsing presidential candidates and influencing legislators and other national leaders in an effort to try to return America to a position of moral goodness. 
Uh, and very often they spend far more time attacking the national decline away from morality than in calling people to know Jesus Christ. Uh, most of those churches and lobbyists really do want to bring America to a standard of righteousness and morality, and to do so they seek every political avenue possible to accomplish that. Now I want to say at the very beginning that I agree with high moral standards, so I don't want to be misunderstood. I definitely agree with strong codes of ethics and morality, and I believe we should adhere to those which are truths revealed in the Word of God. But morality by itself, without a right relationship to God, is in many ways more dangerous than immorality. That may shock you, but let me say it again. Morality by itself, without a right relationship to God, is in many ways more dangerous than immorality. Now that really shouldn't shock you because that's essentially exactly what we saw Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount. Over and over again, he emphasized that mere outward righteousness is one of the greatest hindrances to the gospel. And that's basically what the Lord is teaching us in the passage that we're going to start looking at here. The danger of morality, the danger of ethics, the danger of religion, the danger of reformation, danger of cleaning up your life, of changing from evil habits to good habits. Now let's consider the context so you can see where this is going. The Pharisees were classic moralists. There was no other group in existence at the time more committed to ethics, standards, principles of life, morals, than were the Pharisees. They lived by a complex and demanding ethical moral code. Laws for everything existed and their life was utterly and totally circumscribed by a mass of legislation and morality. In many ways, they would be the moral majority of their time. They were calling people to ethical behavior based upon the laws of their own pious tradition. But in the process of their moral pursuit, they were in fact rejecting God himself, who was in their midst in human form. So that while they were deeply entrenched in morality, they were damned to hell. And it appears as though the more they came to commit themselves to morality, the more they set in concrete their own judgment. They cleaned up their life outwardly and it so effectively that they convinced themselves that they were righteous, moral, and good. Consequently, when someone came along preaching a message that called them sinners, they were not interested in listening. And so under the illusion of their own self-righteousness, they became unreachable. Jesus had little trouble reaching the prostitutes, the thieves, the tax collectors who were extort, extort, extorting people all the time, the outcasts, the sinners of society. But he had an almost impossible time reaching the religious, self-righteous, moral people who were under the illusion of self-deception that because of their goodness, everything was okay between them and God. You see, they recognized no sin in themselves, so they needed no Savior. And that's always the danger of morality. 
it creates an illusion of safety when in fact the person who is moral may be in the greatest danger of all. We see this in particular among the Mormons who feel so secure because of their morality when in fact they're under the judgment of God and yet are so hard to convince of that fact. Turn over for just a moment to Matthew 23. I think this will help put this into perspective. Matthew 23 is an indictment of the Pharisees, the moralists, the religionists. And there are several things that stand out very pointedly that I want to draw to your attention. Verse 25 is a good place to start. Matthew 23, 25. We'll actually start in verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. I guess it is 25, isn't it? For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and an all uncleanness. In this way you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you bear witness against yourselves that you were sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? You see, the real issue was that this was true about them. And the sad fact is they didn't recognize that because such is the illusion of morality. Such is the illusion of self-righteousness. There never lived a group that was more adamantly committed to a moral code than the Pharisees. And there never lived a group so far from God. You see, the legacy of self-righteousness is the deceit that leaves a person with an empty inside and no real sense that that's the case. Now, going back to Matthew 11, 12, we have seen that the theme of those two chapters has been the rejection of Jesus Christ. And they didn't just reject him. They went so far as to say he was satanic in chapter 12, verse 24. And as a result of that accusation, he was satanic. They're unforgivable. In verses 31 and 32, Jesus says they're doomed forever by their conclusion that he was of Satan and they could not be redeemed. And then beginning in verse 43, chapter 12 concludes with Jesus' response to that ultimate rejection. He's given them the message of judgment. He's given them the message of condemnation. And to sum it all up, before he begins a brand new section in chapter 13, he speaks to them with what really amounts to an invitation. Because in the midst of the multitude that was there, there would be some who would believe, some who would listen, some who would respond. And so there is, if you can see it as I see it, a simple warning and call in this last section. So the purpose of this section can be summed up very simply. It is to warn them not to listen to the 
religion of the Pharisees and the moralists, but to come to Jesus Christ. And there's a big difference. On the one hand, you have reformation. On the other hand, you have relationship. And those are our two points. The danger of reformation and the power of relationship. Do you remember the parable Jesus gave in Luke 18 of the two men who went up to the temple to pray? One was a Pharisee, a self-righteous religionist, a moralist. The other is an immoral, extortionist tax collector. <coughs> and this is the way the parable goes. The Pharisee stood up and was praying these things to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. That's a typical prayer of a moralist. I thank you, God, that I don't have any problems. I thank you, God, that I'm okay, that I'm all right the way I am. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. I don't live like this tax collector. In fact, on the positive side, I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I possess. Just checking in to let God know that he's still as holy as he's always been. He's the moralist. On the other hand, says, but the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, morality in and of itself is a damning thing. Self-righteousness is a damning thing. You are better off to be immoral and face the reality of your needs so that you would come to a savior than live under the illusion that because you have a moral code on the outside, all is well on the inside between you and God. That's the message of this passage. So let's begin looking at Reformation in verses 43 and 45. Yes. The message that the Lord had for the way of the seed church for John was, I wish that you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spew you out of the sun. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this has to be one of the most fascinating parables that Jesus ever told. And here in this parable, the Lord gives the results of morality, the, 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 uh, the results of the ethical religious approach. You see that today with the Jews. You sometimes see it with some of the more staunch Roman Catholics. Uh, you see it with liberal Protestants. Uh, you see it with the Mormons and the moralists and religious of the world who pursue a moral approach to life, but do not have in their lives the living Christ. And that's what our Lord is going to say in this passage. So let's begin by reading verses 43 to 45 again. It says, Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it comes, then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. 
Now, who does Jesus identify in verse 43 as the main character of this parable? It's an unclean spirit. An unclean spirit is a demon, a, a fallen angel, one of Satan's supernatural evil subordinates. That phrase, unclean spirit, is used several times in the New Testament. Matthew only uses it here and back in chapter 10, verse 1, but it's a favorite of Mark's. He uses it 11 times in his gospel. Uh, the, the term unclean indicates their immorality, the filthy, vile character of their nature. But note that there are some who are more wicked than others. In other words, just like humans, even among the demons, there are some who are worse than others in how they behave and impact people. That's indicated to us in verse 45, where it says that when this demon returns, he comes back with seven others that are more wicked than himself. Uh, the idea is simply that all demons are vile, wretched, wicked beings, but they even they have varying levels of wickedness. They go from vile and wretched to the most vile and wretched. And so dwelling within this man in this parable is a, was a vile, wretched, unclean, demonic spirit. That tells us that's where they like to be. Uh, this is an insight into the fact that these beings like to live in men. Uh, and in this case, this one goes out of the man. The text doesn't tell us specifically how or why. I think that we'll see the best explanation as we move through the story. But the spirit has gone out. He leaves. And when he walks through... Then he walks through waterless, dry places, seeking rest, but he doesn't find it. And so we, find, we see this restless spirit moving through the barren waste of a desert, waterless, dry places. Now, since unclean spirits do not need food and water in the way that humans do, the waterless places here figuratively represent desolation, barrenness, and extreme discomfort. As I said, from this and other places in the New Testament, it seems evident that demons prefer to indwell bodily creatures, preferably human beings, but secondarily even animals, as we saw in Matthew 8.31, where the demons asked Jesus if they could go into the herd of pigs. They apparently prefer to indwell a living creature in order to better express their evil nature. They can't do that with inanimate objects or lifeless objects. So I think they prefer to indwell human beings because it's through humans that Satan and his demons can most successfully accomplish their evil goals and oppose God. Now, now when Jesus says that the unclean spirit is seeking rest and does not find it, there's a restlessness with this spirit. He needs refreshment. He needs, it's as if he needs a place to work out his filthy activity. This disembodied demon is restless until he can find a place back in human life. I think it's a very important thing for us to note because Jesus is saying, in effect, that demons go in and out of people and seem to be more at home in them than out of them. And so then the demon decides in verse 44, I will return to my house from which I came. That's a very interesting statement. Notice that it it's calls it my house. This demon perceived that the man in whom he indwelt belonged to him. Uh, the demon had been there so long that it perceived this man to be its own dwelling place. So what that tells us is that demons not only function within men, 
but apparently they can take up a somewhat permanent residence there. He wanted to go back to the man he had left, perhaps more so than to have to find another man. Uh, perhaps the person he indwelt was compliant, easily controlled, and influenced. Well, I'm, I'm just looking at the time and seeing that uh, there's simply no way that we're going to be able to get very far in this. So let me pause here and let you know that we will explain all of this next week, Lord willing. Okay? So any any questions or comments? <laughs> yes? Um, just talking about your good deed and that may not have changed that gentleman right away. That's a lot No, he I'm sure he'll remember it sometime. Yeah. I worked with a bunch of JWs for six years. He went to their meetings, no one to see what they were about and everything. And two of the people, the guy and his wife, he was supposed to be the pastor of this JW church. And she was our secretary in our business.